now I will introduce today's very special guest. I visited the website of the Assembly of First Nations not long ago and was struck by the photograph of a beautiful little boy. His face was painted in a traditional manner and he was wearing a traditional headdress. It seemed to me the perfect symbol of the dual importance of past and future for Canada's First Nations. Since 1982, the Assembly of First Nations, our country's foremost national Aboriginal advocacy organization, has benefited from a succession of dynamic, courageous, and passionate leaders. The Assembly's 10th national chief, Sean Ainchot Atleo, exhibits these same qualities and then some. Throughout his distinguished career, he has served our First Nations as a leader, facilitator, mediator, planner, and teacher. Since taking on the leadership of the Assembly of First Nations in July 2009, National Chief Atlio has been hard at work advancing First Nations issues and priorities across Canada. He's focused on bringing lasting, positive change to the more than 630 First Nations communities in our country. Economic development, education, health, housing, social development, land claims, and the environment are just some of the, uh, of the issues that are on the AFN's agenda. National Chief Atlio has direct experience championing, championing these issues. He is a hereditary chief of the Ahusat First Nation in British Columbia and served two consecutive three-year terms as regional chief a position to which he was elected by the 203 chiefs of British Columbia. In his six years as regional chief, he led several important efforts to create dialogue among and within First Nations peoples, as well as with local, provincial, and federal governments, industry, and others to advance national, uh, First Nation rights and economic interests. He is credited with facilitating the signing of the historic Leadership Accord with the political executives of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs and the First Nations Summit. The scope of the National Chiefs' experience is, is international, having participated on several international delegations as well as providing input on the creation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. He also led a delegation that assisted with rebuilding Indigenous communities in Indonesia in the wake of the devastating 2004 tsunami. National Chief Atlio holds a Master's of Education in Adult Learning and Global Change and was recognized for his commitment to education when he was appointed Chancellor of the Vancouver Island University in 2008. He holds the distinction of being BC's first Aboriginal Chancellor. And last year, he received an Honorary Doctor of Education degree from Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario. The Canadian Club of Toronto is thrilled and honoured to have National Chief Atlio at our podium today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming him. Thank you uh, so much, uh, President uh, Chambers. And he didn't mention that uh, it's Marianne that uh, the person that he introduced earlier, that that's his mum. And so I see that it runs in the family here, in the leadership with the um, Canadian Club. 
and uh, really appreciating the opportunity to be here with all of you, uh, such distinguished uh, leaders of, of uh, our community and indeed our nation. And I know that uh, so often that the young people are told that they're the leaders of tomorrow. Uh, but to have two schools here, I want to begin by reflecting back to you that you, in fact, are the leaders of right now in this country, that we're looking to you to take us to this next level. And uh, so I promised them that I would do my utmost not to bore them uh, in this uh, speech, but uh, please give them another round of encouragement for taking the time to be here. Well, I'm very honored to be here with all of you today in this great city. Greetings uh, from the West Coast, where finally after 40 years and only after I moved and traveled to the East and relocated are the Canucks potentially going to go all the way. <laughs> we know that, uh, that this juncture in our history is a very important time. And I know all the adults in the room are focused on it, but I want also the youth to Pay attention to what's happening that we're in the middle of a major campaign. The politicians are out there and, and uh, the leaders are pursuing votes. Debates are happening on issues like deficit reduction, tax cutting, employment and health. And while on the surface this may seem disconnected, these are of deep interest and concern to First Nations as well. My job here today is to help every one of you to see the connection and the opportunity of bridging our issues within the mainstream of Canadian politics and the economy. I believe that the time is now to work together to build a stronger country and a better future for all of our peoples. But before I do, I would like to begin, as is the tradition of Indigenous peoples of this land, by thanking the people on whose traditional territory we gather, the Mississaugas. In fact, just this last winter, the Mississaugas of New Credit agreed to a proposed settlement of $145 million in relation to what's known as the original Toronto Purchase, dating back over 200 years. Right here on this land, resolving wrongs of the past has the potential to balance the scales and create a better future for all of us. As in the very kind introduction, as was said, uh, and this was something that the students were asking me about, Sit Yaks Ah Inchut, my name is Ah Inchut, or Sean Atlio, otherwise known as. And uh, I was very honoured to accept the position of National Chief in July of 2009. I am, in fact, as I was explaining, a long ways from home. I come from the far west coast of Vancouver Island, just as about as far west as you can go, as as I like to say, next stop, Japan. Can't go any further west. Come from a small fishing village called Ahousit, and we are the New Chonolf people. Many of you may be hearing about my people for the first time. Such is the way with the history known in this great country of Canada. Tragically, it's a history that denies itself the vibrancy and richness of the Indigenous peoples. My nation, you see, the New Chonolf, have existed for hundreds of thousands of years, and we're people of the ocean, people with a complex governing system grounded in laws of wrought responsibility and of respect, sacred ceremony, thank you for the tobacco as well that was offered this morning, and a guiding philosophy that we are all one, or hishuk nishtsawak, as it is said in my language, that we are all interconnected. 
I was trained growing up in my village, even as a small boy, thinking back to a time when even I was about six years old, to understand the responsibilities I would need to take up to lead my people. While other children were out playing, I was whisked off by the grannies, by the elders, inside to their homes, and I was told the stories, stories about our people, stories about our sacred laws and the wisdom, stories about our struggle, stories that still instruct me to this day. And I am not unlike many First Nations leaders across this country, some of whom have been introduced here today, and I'm proud to be joined by great leaders from other great nations, from the Anishinaabek to the Iroquois Confederacy. And I wanted to begin my presentation here in this way today because it says, in my view, so much about where we are today. I stand here today with you, as do my fellow leaders, with a proud and a powerful history and an enduring connection to my nation. I stand here because of Indigenous leaders that went before us, leaders with a vision and leaders with a dream. We have survived, and therefore, their dreams are still possible. And so today, it's about looking squarely into the future. Today, I advance a plan about the possible, about the potential, and the promise of a better future for all. You see, because I know that it was not only First Nations peoples who had a dream for a better future. Samuel de Champlain, a name that you all know, had a different kind of dream too. The recent book, Champlain's Dream, and I recommend it as, a, as an excellent, re- excellent reading, it offered up a startling revelation for me. I just read it last fall, and it hasn't left me. It tells of a dream of a society based on partnership between Indigenous peoples and Europeans to strengthen and to enrich one another. And it was a plan completely the opposite of what was being directed by colonial governments the world over at the time. Displacement, war, and enslavement were the objectives across the Americas and the Caribbean. So today, in my presentation about building a stronger future for the next generation, I'm really talking about the dreams of all of our ancestors. Dreams about a great nation, dreams of mutual respect, of harmony, of mutual strength and prosperity. And the reality is that we have a lot of work to do. This dream I speak of has not been the experience nor the reality of Indigenous peoples in this country. The early explorers wrote that my nation, the Nuchanoth, must be the wealthiest people on earth when they witnessed how it is that my people lived. Champlain wrote of the Mi'kmaq in the Atlantic coast and the Huron, saying that they were the finest humans he had ever seen, and he marveled at their systems of agriculture, fisheries, hunting, and trade. Sadly, this is not our story today. There has been a constant and aggressive erosion of our economies. Today, we suffer exponentially the poorest socioeconomic conditions of all Canadians, while Canada consistently ranks within the top 10 country on the UN Human Development Index. First Nations fall well below, ranking among developing and third world nations. Stats tell the tragic tale of an infant mortality rate that is twice as high as Canadian averages. 
rates of TB 30 times the national average, and an education gap that will take over two decades to close, and a reality that our children are more likely to end up in jail than to graduate from high school. This is the harsh reality of where we find ourselves today, a reality that I see on a daily basis. In the 18 months that I've been National Chief, I've traveled to every region, to the urban settings, and to the most remote villages. I've seen firsthand the great suffering and heard firsthand of the challenges faced. And I have to say that the most powerful moments of these trips is sitting with the kids. They are always so uninhibited to speak the truth, aren't they? I always ask them what they see in their future. And just a few weeks ago, I was in Fort Capel, Saskatchewan, talking with a group of young teenagers. And one thoughtful-looking boy caught my attention for more than one reason. He was probably 14 or 15 years old, partially because he reminded me of myself at that age. And I asked him what was on his mind. And he slowly looked up, and he said, with a bit of a cadence that would come from the rappers of the day, he says, life on the res is hard. It leaves you scarred. And in that moment, this young man captured the fear and the struggle of our people right across the country. A fear I witnessed in the eyes of young parents struggling to deal with poverty, of leaders overwhelmed by natural disasters, and an inability to cope with dwindling resources, of the despair of the elderly feeling, fearing for their grandchildren, a fear I see as well in the people living in urban centers, where gangs are the only family and drugs the only escape. It is this fear, this fear that we must overcome, this fear that is the product of centuries of denial and displacement and attempted assimilation, a fate that has denied the possibility of a dream of mutual respect and support. Still, within the fear and the despair, there is still hope. And this hope flickers in the survival, the very survival of our nations. The very fact that I stand here, today linked in an unbroken chain of leadership, along with my colleagues, is part of that hope. We do see hope and opportunity all around us. And all of Canada has a tremendous and shared stake in turning this around. We have a dynamic, young, and rapidly growing population at a time when the rest of Canada is aging. The reality holds both great potential, of which will be my primary focus here, but I want to make something very, very clear. There are also serious negative consequences of inaction. There is anger. There is deep frustration, and rightfully so. It's imperative, then, that just as our collective ancestors did in the time of treaty-making, that we must recommit to work together. We must demonstrate to the young people our ability to respect each other and to find the path forward. The question is, is how do we do this work together? Well, to start, we have new maps for this journey, a journey of reconciliation to confirm fairness, justice, and opportunity, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is now accepted by every nation of the world. And the Declaration 
which was forged by indigenous peoples, speaks to the need to work together in mutual respect and partnership, and sets out clear standards to work towards. And this is a first step. This and the guarantee in Canada's 1982 Constitution that recognizes and affirms the reality of Aboriginal treaty rights, these are the victories of our leaders who fought to hold the line for future generations. These are now the powerful achievements upon which we build back our nations and our powerful alliances of mutual support and benefit with all the people of Canada. And we must rebuild on a foundation of common understanding that clears away the myths and misconceptions that are holding all of us back. Often people fail to see the importance of cultural survival and dignity. And this is a mistake. This was illustrated in a recent study by researchers studying suicide in our communities. They set out to understand why youth suicide seems so variable from one community to the next. The factors that were most prevalent in communities that did not have a high rate of suicide may surprise you. The leading six things in these communities, factors that could be described as actually preventing youth suicide, were self-government, land claim settlements, education, health and emergency services, and cultural supports. Communities with these things in place had the lowest suicide rates across the country. These are communities where the children look to a future that is not dimmed by despair, but fired by a growing sense of hope and opportunity. Settlements and self-government are translating into better results for our people. And we are rising to the challenge of building effective governments. Governance is clearly about taking responsibility and accountability to our citizens. Where there are problems, communities must take action. And in fact, the Assembly also took action. Our Leadership Assembly in December adopted new accountability measures and renewed our call to government to work with us to create a First Nations Auditor General. We have shown we take accountability for our leadership, but accountability is a two-way street. We seek commitment from whoever forms the next government to demonstrate accountability for the federal bureaucracy and for maximizing resources that actually get to our communities to build our schools, deliver clean water, and health services. Our nations stand directly in the path of tremendous resource development potential. And just as in the days of the fur trade, our nations are once again an important part of the landscape to succeed. Partnership and alliance will produce mutual benefit and will strengthen the Canadian economy overall. So let me be very direct. I suggest for you here today that our effort to work together should be focused to deliver on a short list of clear priorities, and I'll touch on each one of them. First of all, affirmation. Secondly, education. Third, partnerships. And fourth, community safety. This is a program or an approach that requires our energy and demands our full attention. While many, including the federal parties, may think our issues are not really part of this current election campaign, I ask them and all of you to think again. Not only are the issues of the campaign critical to us, but more importantly, First Nations issues do matter to all of Canada. The Assembly of First Nations launched a specific campaign called First Nations Count, setting out the priorities and the facts. We're doing things for the first time, including a virtual summit on April 14th, 
Some have suggested that I or we are stoking the fires. I would say that we're getting engaged in ways never seen before simply because there is so much that's at stake. And so let me talk about the four priorities. The first I mentioned, affirmation. Just as Champlain set about to create a different country, our ancestors created treaty relationships. These were not one-time agreements that sold our land for trinkets. As the courts have clearly instructed, and now further affirmed through international law, the treaties were enduring relationships holding great promise for a better future for all. This is the basis of a renewed Canada achieved through reconciliation. And we have a great opportunity to expedite the settlement of land claims through new policies that create the conditions not for endless negotiation, but rather successful conclusion. This paves the way for certainty for us and for business. Just as we worked with the government to create the specific claims tribunal, so too must we redesign policies and rapidly increase the advancement of recognition and implementation of governments. This point was made so vividly to me this last weekend when the Monoth entered their final agreement. They had a celebration of their treaty, represented over 30 years of negotiation of struggle and intense effort by generations of leaders. And a friend of mine grabbed me by the shoulders and with great emotion in his eye, he was tearing up. He said, Sean, it feels so good. We are finally free of the Indian Act. And at that moment, those words struck me in the echo of another dream of another famous leader and another struggle for justice who said, we are free, free at last. This is our goal. Free from the Indian Act and the policies that have held all of us back. This must be achieved not over 30 years, as has been the pattern, not in 20 years or 10 years, but starting right now and certainly in our lifetime. The second of our four-point priorities is education. Our call to action is to all Canadians to support a guarantee for funding for First Nations education. You see, for every other Canadian, funding for education is protected through fiscal relationships that reflect inflation and population growth. For First Nations, this is not the case. Every year, funding for our schools is subject to cutbacks and realignment by Ottawa bureaucrats. There are differences across the country, but the bottom line is that, on average, a child going to school on reserve is funded at $2,000 less per child than a child going to a school in a neighboring community. In some places, this disparity climbs to over $7,000 less per child. I think everyone would agree. There's a basic and fundamental inequity here denying our children what every other child in Canada has. This is simply unfair, and it's simply unacceptable. We are very encouraged that organizations, universities, teachers, federations, and many corporations have signaled their support and are joining us in this work. The provincial and territorial governments have also voiced their support, and we're working directly with them on specific action plans. I'm very happy to announce that on April 19th, I will be meeting together with all of the provincial ministers of Aboriginal Affairs to advance our commitments on specific action plans on education. And at the federal level, well, we have more work to do. All parties have made some commitment to working with us on education. This is important, but now we must act. We simply cannot abandon another generation to poverty 
and to despair. Indeed, I am hopeful that we will design a way forward to begin to build First Nation education systems within the next year. We look to you to help us to move forward to support a statutory guarantee for funding for our schools, to close the gap in education, and to ensure that our kids have every opportunity. Failing to invest in our young people will result in dramatically increased social costs and, of course, lost potential. On the other hand, by closing the education and labour market outcomes in one generation, there is potential to generate $400 billion in additional output and save $115 billion in government expenditures. During this campaign, both the Conservatives and Liberals have been quick to commit in this campaign to guarantee current rates of growth to the provinces at 6.6%. These transfers for health, education and social services are protected through these stable arrangements. And yet for us, this is not the case. For over a decade, funding for these same services has been capped at 2% growth, despite the fact that we have the most rapidly growing population. Our position is clear. First Nations must receive fair treatment and there must be a commitment to sustainability in our communities. And today I issue this very specific challenge to all parties in this campaign. Commit to the same growth, 6.6% for First Nations core services. Commit to fairness and hope for our young population. Our third priority is to build and strengthen one another's economic opportunities. I've witnessed growing entrepreneurship amongst our peoples in all sectors of the economy. The potential for shared benefit across the North and elsewhere is immense. And we are hosting an important conference at the end of June just down the road in Niagara Falls, an international Indigenous summit on energy and mining. This will showcase how our people are not sitting back, but rather are driving the opportunities on energy development. There are many examples of green energy projects where First Nations are driving the way forward across the country. In Ontario alone, First Nations are direct participants through major projects such as Five Nations Energy or individual examples like the small communities, the Ojibwe's of Pick River, poised to become giants in the green energy sector. They are already generating over 13 million in hydro revenues on an annual basis. You see, if we engage up front, prior to any development and create relationships, energy and new resource development could be the new fur trade. It could generate an economic lever that lifts First Nations into prosperity while fostering positive engagement between First Nations and other communities. Fourth and last is safety and community security. The words of that young man from Fort Capel resonated so very powerfully for me and reminded me that without basic safety, our bigger goals simply cannot be achieved. Our work must not forget the basic needs that touch families most closely. We must commit ourselves as a society to ensure that every child has access to safe, clean drinking water, that every mother knows that medical attention is at hand should she or her baby fall ill, and that every youth has somewhere to turn and someone to talk to in moments of despair. Our communities suffer trauma too often and struggle without basic supports to recover. As neighbours, we must all find a sense of community 
and extend a helping hand. Our agenda requires action, action that addresses the root cause of violence and despair, action that translates into investment in stable, safe drinking water systems, in housing, in shelters, and in community centers, action that can show all of our people that there's fairness, action that can back up my words when I responded to that young man in Fort Capel, thanking him for his honesty and telling him he is not alone. Action that keeps our families safe and keeps our kids in schools. Action that tells him and all of our youth that there is hope and that there's opportunity. Our agenda, as I've said, is affirmation, education, partnership, and safety. And I, I want to be very clear about, about this point. We simply must together move beyond the guilt, the blame, and the finger-pointing, because we all have a stake in our future. We have so much potential, and we have so much to gain. What we need, what Canada needs, is a new story. You see, Canada is more than two founding nations. Canada is more than a cultural mosaic. Canada is more than a nation of immigrants. Canada is also built on a proud heritage of strong, vibrant, indigenous nations. So you see, our new story is actually a very old one. It's a story of proud nations with an abiding respect for the environment, of trade, and alliances of governing systems that respect the rights of all. Our new story pushes away once and for all the failed attempts at assimilation and the outrageous denial of the existence and rights of indigenous peoples. Our new story recaptures the dream of all of our ancestors, the dreams of the two-row wampum, of canoes traveling side by side, the dreams of the original treaties of peace and friendship, and the dreams of the explorers from Europe who imagined a different kind of society, of respect and of partnership. And so let's begin, shall we? Let's turn the page and begin writing a new chapter together, one that tells a story of respect and recognition, of safety and security, of optimism and opportunity for all, and for that young man in Fort Capel who is looking to us to build a stronger Canada for all Canadians. We have the tools, we have the energy, and I can feel it growing. Now is our time to bring life to this new story together. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, National Chief. Uh, we're going to take some questions from the audience. We have a microphone here with Nicholas and a microphone over here with Jennifer. Please raise your hand. We have uh, a lady over here. Okay, we'll start on that side. Hi, um, I'm Kathy. I'm uh, from an organization called Dare Arts. And uh, we, about four years ago, um, we went to one of those communities where uh, the youth 
were going through so much grief. Um, they had had uh, a series of suicides in that community. Um, the rest of the community was working very, very hard on, on rebuilding. Um, uh, one of the problems uh, with communities like Webaquay is that the kids, they, they go to school in one place, in, at home, with their families, in their communities, until about grade uh, 11. And then if they want to continue and get those opportunities that are available for other kids in Thunder Bay, they have to go to places like Thunder Bay. And right now, um, two months later, uh, we're missing one of our, one of our children. Um, he went south to go to school, and he disappeared off the face of the earth. And no one in Toronto knows about this because it seems like um, his story stays in Thunder Bay, and it doesn't go beyond what can we do to help um, increase the, the, the capability for these kids to stay at home, keep their schooling, go to school, have that hope, have all those resources that are available to them within the bosom of their family and, and their community? What can we do? Well, thank you for sharing that. Um... It's a very, very tragic situation, and I hear stories like that all, all too often. In, in part, you were also suggesting that part of the challenge is the fact that this story is not known, that outside the community, local community, it's not well understood, or the information doesn't even get out there to the broad society. I think that's what uh, an event or a conversation like this can help us all to realize, that it's time for that to be understood by all of Canada that the dream that Champlain had in the, in the early treaty-making always envisioned was a path that was mutual recognition and respect and understanding, and that we would live in peace, in harmony, and in friendship with one another. That just simply has not been the case, and it's time to get back onto that path. That study that I, that I uh, referenced, the six parts, was a study authored by Chandler and Lalonde, and it identified the six, six areas that, that in their study had suggested that if they're in place in communities, that the sense of well-being goes up, the sense of despair and hopelessness goes down, and as a result, even it's a life-or-death situation. And so today, this is about compelling or asking all of you, reaching out to the parties, reaching out to Canadians, to say at this juncture of our history, not one more child lost to that sense of despair and hopelessness. I'm Chandra Kansha, and I work at the Anishinaabe Health Center in Toronto. And uh, uh, I heard the story of a barbecue, but the similar story is happening in the city of Toronto. We have about 60 to 80,000 Aboriginal people, which are invisible within the 3 million people here. Most people are as ignorant about them as about the reserve population. But more than that, also, we've been looking at some of the deaths in the city of Toronto and Aboriginal community, and almost, almost all of them are under 70. Life expectancy in Canada is about 
78. And many of these people are dying between 40 and 60, really. And here is the Toronto, which claims to be the technologically most superior in healthcare. And here these people are still dying prematurely. So it's not just on reserve, it's off reserve, and everywhere the same situation for the Aboriginal people. And I'm glad that you're talking here, and uh, I hope that it would raise a lot of consciousness of the rest of the Canadians in this particular area. Thank you. Thank you for that. Perhaps uh, I'll, I'll just respond very quickly while the microphone's maybe going to the next person. Uh, the Assembly of First Nation hosted, uh, uh, where we participated in a major event in, the, in Toronto here, um, recognizing that there is uh, so much work to be done to support First Nations people wherever they reside. And we're reaching out to work with the, the Métis uh, Nation as well and uh, our Inuit Indigenous brothers and sisters to recognize we're all in this together. And we need to find ways to make sure that those divisions that we did not create on and off reserve, status and non-status, none of us in this room created that, nor did any of us write that Indian Act. But I think what we're say, suggesting here today is that the health and well-being of people is at, at stake and at jeopardy. And we've got to find ways to work together to accomplish that. And so uh, thank you, sir, for raising that here, because I think awareness is really the first step. We have time Hello, for one more you. question. The lady at the uh, back. Uh, thank you. Um, my name's Jean Clinton. I'm from Hamilton. And just want to share a story. I was in New Brunswick last week talking to a group of young people, and they told me about Shannon's dream. And I just want to share it with this group to perhaps uh, have people mobilized to go online. As I understand it, Shannon was a young elementary school uh, girl in, I believe, Apiswatispat. And she had her um, school uh, ruined by, uh, by some toxic substance. And so the school became a series of portables. And it's continued for years. And Shannon decided that she would like to activate and motivate and get the federal government involved, went to visit, and they said it wasn't possible. But she's created a uh, movement to have a comfy and safe school for all children. Unfortunately, she died in a car accident, being driven to the other school. So it's an invitation that those young people invited me to join, www.shannonsdream.ca. And we can pressure the federal government to say, if my kids in Hamilton have a right to a comfy and safe school, every child has a right to a comfy and safe school www.shannonsdream.ca Thank you for that. Uh, I think that that is a last comment uh, on education, and thanks for that story. Um, it was very moving, and Shannon, late Shannon showed a lot of courage, and uh, thanks to her courage, her community is going to get a school because of her. So I, I wanted, to, wanted to thank you for that. And uh, I guess just to reflect finally on, on just a, 
uh, reflection on, on uh, memories of my late grandmother. She just passed away um, not but two years ago. She was 87 years old, and she, she raised uh, 17 kids, of which my dad is her eldest. And she was a tough woman, even though she's about this, this tall. And uh, I was honored to give uh, the eulogy at, uh, at her funeral. And she left me with a, me- with a message. She had said, uh, Grandson, uh, I've been a fighter all my life. And I raised all of my kids to be fighters. But you don't fight your fights with your fists any longer. You fight the fight with education. And so, guys, make sure you go get your education. Thank you very much. to call Jamie Watt, President-Elect of the Canadian Club, to the podium. Thank you, Nick. Chief Atlio, as we've seen today, you've already become an icon of the new generation of First Nations leaders in Canada, eloquent, thoughtful, and realistic. We cannot and should not erase or forget the sins of the past. We can and should acknowledge and honor the suffering of previous generations. But really, the most valuable contribution we can make to that memory is to ensure better opportunities for today's children in health, education, and good jobs. Chief Atlio, that's the message that we've taken from your words today your commitment to look forward to build a better future for the next generation of First Nation Canadians, to build that new story, and to do it rooted in the old story, peace and friendship, those two canoes. For that, and being with us here today, you have not only our abiding thanks, but you have the thanks of that young man from Fort Cabell. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, National Chief Atlio, and thanks once again to RBC for making this event possible. This concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers TV. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. Thanks to all of you for joining us here today. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>